The internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore it. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shagoths, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say we will discover or build a god when we reach the cyber ocean floor. People claim to remember past lives, I claim to remember a different, very different present life. The psychotic drones, where the mystic swims, they're drowning. And welcome back to the Astral Flight Simulation Podcast, where we attempt to navigate the digital world through art and culture. And I am joined by yet another very special guest, a guy I've been talking to for, I think at this point, it's been a couple months, uh, trying to come up with exactly what we want to talk about and exactly what our topic is going to be. Mr. Athenian Stranger, uh, me and him have been acquainted with each other over Twitter, and we've been going back and forth, like I said, for months and there's so much this man uh, is knowledgeable, knowledgeable about, and there's so much that he can talk about uh, at length in detail and bring in all the different uh, aspects of different thinkers, different philosophers, different pop cultural references, different uh, literary references. Uh, he, he has both uh, an academic plus a real world plus uh, his own idiosyncratic perspective on everything that, um, you know, he's been at the top of my list of one of the guys I wanted to get on this podcast for a long time and finally we kind of came to the conclusion that look there's no way we can fit everything into one episode so as i'm as i want to say with all of my guests uh, i'm going to hold his feet to the fire right now and tell him uh make him commit to coming back several times because there's quite a lot we need to talk about um athenian before i introduce today's topic i would like you to introduce yourself a little bit and in whatever way in whatever way you see fit um you have quite a powerful uh, Twitter presence. And I've watched your account grow by the thousands uh, just by the uh, the virtue of all the all the things I praised you for. Um, so why don't you come in and uh, give us a little intro before we get started on the subject at hand. Okay, so uh, I, I just want to make sure I'm the the uh, the right Athenian in the room that you're speaking of, because uh, this is one of those things where it's almost like you've been so generous uh, that I'm not quite sure it's me you're talking about. And I've just been overwhelmed with the way that people have been so generous to me, uh, particularly yourself. Um, my background itself uh, was that I uh, originally, uh, my background is in mathematics. Uh, I went all the way up to the PhD level and I spent uh, about a year and a half in a PhD uh, math program. Uh, my area of specialty in math was applied mathematics. I was uh, always fascinated with mathematical physics uh, and how it is, uh, related to modern science, uh, the understanding of the, the, the world around us, really. Um, but then I became very interested in uh, also this area of, known as uh, set theory, uh, which becomes very, very philosophical very quickly. Uh, there was no one in the department that really was interested in helping me with the do research on set theory. Uh, and I sort of found myself uh, wandering over into the philosophy department. Uh, but what, at the same time, while I was doing the mathematics, uh, my advisor was French, uh, and his wife was in the history department. And one thing about the French is that uh, it's considered a courtesy uh, that uh, whenever uh, one of their spouses or whatever is also teaching at the university, you simply take both of their classes. And so uh, I ended up with uh, a, a 
a double major uh, in uh, math and history. Uh, but then I became very jaded with the math department because I was uh, so interested in philosophy. Uh, and at that time, uh, I went through some difficult things in my own life personally uh, with family and also with uh, sort of the only uh, girl I had ever really dated all the way through high school that all sort of fell apart. Uh, and I was just, uh, I mean, I guess there's no other way to say it. I mean, I sort of slipped into this very deep depression. Uh, and I found myself after courses uh, going into, uh, you know, local bookstores and I was always roaming around the history section philosophy section, psychology section. Uh, and uh, I ended up stumbling into a very, very good uh, uh, philosophy uh, department because uh, I just wanted to take one course uh, at the university I was at. And this professor was just an amazing man. Uh, it was one of those chance events in life uh, where you stumble into, uh, you're in a mediocre math department, but yet you stumble into the classroom of a truly amazing uh, professor of philosophy. Uh, and that's when I just decided I wanted to uh, do everything all over again. I had nothing going on in my life. Uh, my, the woman I thought I was going to marry was uh, off with somebody else, uh, some rich guy or something, some rich entrepreneur. Uh, my family, my personal family uh, at home was falling apart. And I said, I've got nothing else going on. Uh, so I'll start from the beginning all over again. I, I left the math department. Uh, and then I just started taking uh, every single course uh, by these three uh, outstanding, uh, truly, truly outstanding, some of the best in, in the world, uh, professors of philosophy and political philosophy. Uh, I took all their classes that they had to offer for a few years because, uh, again, I had nothing going on, <laughs> nothing else going on in my life uh, besides living at the gym. Uh, and then when I had taken all the classes that they offer, um, I just wanted to uh, keep going. Uh, and I happened to be fortunate enough to be in an area where there was one of the best uh, programs uh, down, the, down the street at a different university for the study of political philosophy, uh, great books, et cetera, uh, in the country. Uh, and so uh, I got into their program uh, and then I, I specialized in uh, classical political philosophy, uh, and I need to emphasize here, classical political philosophy, when properly understood, is philosophy itself, right? Uh, political philosophy is, is deeply, deeply metaphysical. Uh, so whenever I had some jackass one time try to mock me uh, in a space where he was saying something like, uh, well, I pulled up your bio and it says something about political philosophy, but that's not philosophy. And I was like, okay, you're a moron. Uh, but uh, the, the point is this, uh, so, so I specialized in classical political philosophy, and uh, in order to do that, this is not an antiquarian exercise. Uh, we're not simply looking back at the past, we're looking, it's a very, uh, to get back to the theme of this space, it's a very Heideggerian thing. Uh, what Heidegger is doing when he's looking back to the Greeks is he's doing it in order to institute um, the German is a Wiederholen, uh, which is to say a repetition, right? Uh, if, if, if the history of philosophy has been misunderstood, uh, then we look back, right? Because it's much like driving a car when all you have is the rearview mirror. So you look back uh, as you're moving forward and you attempt to perform a repetition of whatever it was that was the best out of the past that may have been misunderstood. Uh, and you see how it applies to uh, the contemporary world. Uh, so my area of expertise in philosophy 
uh, is Plato and Aristotle primarily, but also, also and especially uh, Frederick Nietzsche and Martin Heidegger, uh, because they are going to be the ones who critiqued the Western tradition the most rigorously uh, with an eye towards the Greeks. Uh, and I also uh, am uh, especially uh, well, well studied, well read uh, in the thought of Leo Strauss, because Leo Strauss was uh, uh, easily, I think, uh, the greatest student of both Heidegger and Nietzsche. Uh, obviously not direct student, but uh, he learned the most from him, uh, from them, uh, and was able to uh, send it in another direction, right? Send these uh, criticisms of the tradition in the other direction. So uh, so my, my areas, I would say, of expertise are going to be everything that applies to uh, what we would think of as postmodernism, where postmodernism takes very seriously uh, the most ancient of philosophy, right? The Greek philosophers, the early Greek philosophers, uh, but also uh, with emphasis, very much emphasis, uh, on what we know today as modern science or mathematical science, and particularly uh, technology, uh, these sorts of things. And so that's uh, that's sort of me in a <laughs> to steal an image from Nietzsche. Uh, that's me in a nutshell, right? Uh, that this is what Nietzsche says about his Twilight of the Idols. It says it, he says it's his philosophy in a nutshell. Uh, so that is the Athenian stranger in a nutshell. That's excellent. No, that's great. I wanted to actually talk to you about some of your biographical uh, background, but we have so much to discuss. I didn't think we'd be able to get it in. So I'm glad we got that. And you segued quite nicely into today's topic, which is Heidegger and his essay, The Question Concerning Technology. Now, regarding, um, I just want to make a quick, Quick side note before we get right down into it, uh, the Greeks and Heidegger. One thing, my primary interest is literature and literary criticism. Uh, and through that pursuit, I came to read Sprengler's Decline of the West, which I talk about quite a lot. I read that for purposes of literary crit criticism. However, uh, quite a lot was revealed to me about where Nietzsche and, and Heidegger, who I'd read prior to Sprengler, Quite a lot was revealed to me about where their thought came from. And I realized I went back and read like five Nietzsche books in a row right after Decline of the West. Uh, and I realized that everything these three thinkers are talking about and really much of the tradition of German idealism, as I understand it, is couched in a intimate, intimate understanding, a living embodiment of the Greek mindset. Uh, so when 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 Athenian gave his breakdown of the question concerning technology, I realized that he was much farther ahead of me on the same journey that I was embarking upon. But also, in addition to that, my kind of goal here when I when I discuss film, because, you know, I talk about lots of different things, talk about culture and, and all that. But when I discuss film, my purpose is to try to illuminate the ideas and the insights of other thinkers through popular culture or through the the art of film and, and literature as well. So when Athenian explained uh, the question concerning technology, he he evoked the Terminator uh, in doing so. And that that was what what did it for me. I said, OK, so the the series of discussions me and you are going to have has to start with the question concerning technology and the Terminator, because you're already doing what I'm also doing. And uh, I'm going to wait until uh, Athenian gives his breakdown of the essay to explain exactly how and why uh, this is so. But I am going to I am going to say now that the question te concerning technology 
undergirds and is sort of the foundation to my entire astroflight simulation approach to science fiction and film. Everything in my episode about the astroflight simulation as well, as well as all of my critiques of science fiction, every single one of them is, uh, is, is, is born out of my understanding of the question concerning technology, uh, which is a very rich essay. It's, I think it's only 20 or 30 pages long, uh, but 20 or 30 pages of Heidegger uh, requires, you know, like a week of close, intimate study. Um, so uh, I'd like to hand it over to Athenian now. Athenian, what I'd like you to do is sort of just, you have the floor for the moment and uh, we will have uh, uh, some discourse and some back and forth and we will develop some ideas and some perspectives, you know, together on science fiction and Heidegger. But what I'd like you to do now um, is kind of give us a, a, a overview of the essay, the themes in the essay and whatever terminology from the essay, because Heidegger is known for his idiosyncratic uh, terminology, whatever terminology in the essay you think is important, uh, concepts you think are important, using obviously the Terminator, and then we will sort of uh, use that as a way to kind of open up the discussion to more themes in Heidegger as well as other themes in science fiction because I think I think this essay is pertinent to the entire genre. Yeah. Okay. So um, there's a couple things sort of coming out of the uh, starting blocks here. Uh, wh what you had said about uh, you know appreciating the way that I uh, had explained Heidegger. Um, this is always very important. And this is important for philosophy in general. Anytime you are ever talking with anyone about philosophy, uh, the onus is always upon the uh, person who's speaking about philosophy to put it into terms that is understandable to other people. Uh, so that was what uh, I was taught by this sort of great uh, professor that introduced me to philosophy, uh, because you find out very, very quickly. Um, see, see, this is one of the things about philosophy, and, and, and it's just a human nature in general, right? Uh, there's an element of pride that people have. People, and this is understandable, people want to come across as being knowledgeable. And very often, uh, the easiest or sort of the laziest way to come across being knowledgeable is to throw around all these fancy terms. Now, when you start talking about postmodern philosophy, uh, that becomes uh, exceedingly uh, compounded because postmodern philosophy is so full of neologisms. And so you will literally listen to people. And this is, you know, everyone is familiar with this on Twitter, but I can assure you that it is even far more alive and worse uh, at universities, uh, even among you know the the beginning uh, undergraduate students, because uh, they they it, it's so easy sometimes for us to become intoxicated with these thinkers because they put into words uh, what it is that we think that we've always felt, uh, and they do it better than us, and so they start. Uh, talking about uh, things and you're like, I don't know what the hell you just said. Uh, you know, people will talk about things like the, <laughs> well, Heidegger is a, a perfect example of this, but at least Heidegger is actually a very deep thinker. And so you can't understand Heidegger without understanding what he's doing with the German, uh, with language itself, with the Greek itself. And he does this over and over again with all of the various languages he knows. Uh, and the, the, the primary reason he's doing that is because uh, Heidegger is what we think of as a phenomenologist. Uh, now, that's simply 
a kind of fancy way of describing the fact that there's no longer a kind of uh, sub subject object uh, separation, right? Uh, this thing we call objectivity, the objectivity of the scientist, right? Uh, what Heidegger is going to do though, is he's going to further radicalize that and refer to his own understanding of phenomenology as uh, phenomenological hermeneutics. And hermeneutics, of course, is going to be uh, the interpretation of interpretations, right? Uh, and for Heidegger, that's going to always come back around to the language. Uh, now, this is also very closely related to Nietzsche. Nietzsche was a philologist. Uh, and so what Nietzsche does is he has all kinds of stuff to say about the words themselves, right? Uh, so when he's saying things like beyond good and evil, uh, he's not simply saying to get past beyond good and evil, but he's also referring to what is even meant by good and evil, these words, right? I mean, Nietzsche consistently provides these kind of etymological uh, autopsies of words. Uh, Heidegger does that even more so, uh, and he creates new words in the process, right? Uh, and so you'll get a lot of people who uh, study Heidegger and they become experts in Heidegger and they actually even get PhDs in Heidegger, uh, but they don't do the reading that Heidegger did, right? Uh, Heidegger studied Aristotle. Famously, he says something to the effect of, uh, you know, read Aristotle for 13 or 15 years and then read other people. Uh, but what we have in now today, because of the kind of fashion uh, that comes along with whatever's latest and greatest in the uh, ac academic universities, is that people simply want to read Heidegger and what Heidegger says about the previous thinkers, and they just sort of take that as a given. Uh, I was in a class where uh, this rather famous uh, Heideggerian uh, in psychology uh, uh, just sort of blurted out one day, he said, uh, he said, uh, uh, what do people think of when they think of the categories? Uh, and he immediately pointed to me because he knew that I was uh, sort of cross-listing the class uh, with the PhD in the philosophy department, as opposed to the psychology guys. Uh, and he goes, Athenian, uh, what do you think of when you think of the categories? Uh, and I said, Aristotle. And he goes, oh, well, I mean, I was referring to Kant. Uh, because, right, so, uh, so anyone familiar with uh, Aristotle and Kant would know how uh, kind of silly that uh, understanding is uh, from the professor, but, but that's the key, right? Uh, you know when you're dealing with a very serious person, when they're able to simply speak in common language and convey in common language as much as they can the deep thought of someone else. Uh, the people who try to provide deep thought by using the neologisms, right? Uh, these are usually not serious people. Uh, and it's simply because they've just been uh, either, they're not engaging with the text seriously or they think they've simply found, uh, well, I mean, it's an indication of ideologues, right? Ideologues are the people who just read what other people say and they, they believe it, right? And so it doesn't occur to them to have to explain it in better terms. Uh, this is why I love Nietzsche so much. This is why I love Plato so much. Uh, they were able to accomplish enormous amounts of philosophy uh, without introducing neologisms. They spoke in the language of common men, right? Uh, and I think that that's always going to be the onus for everyone speaking about philosophy. Uh, now that said, that's sort of my long sort of uh, spill right there. That said, uh, Heidegger's essay, The Question Concerning Technology, can really sort of be summed up in this. Um, 
Heidegger sees, uh, now he's getting a lot of this from Husserl, right? Uh, and that's another problem. A lot of people will read Heidegger and never even know uh, who Husserl is. Uh, Husserl, uh, Heidegger famously says uh, that uh, he gives a kind of uh, genealogy of his own thought. Uh, and Heidegger says, uh, I think it's in uh, 56 or 57 of the, of the collected works, uh, forget the exact title of the text, I can get it to you, uh, anyone that wants to know. Uh, but what he says is, uh, he says, the young Martin Luther was uh, accompanying me uh, in my early days. Uh, and then he says, Kierkegaard pushed me, right? Uh, then he says, uh, Aristotle was the exemplar of the thinker for me. Uh, but then he says, uh, it was Husserl who gave me eyes uh, and taught me how to see. And when he refers to being in time, uh, he says that the only real prerequisite that he hopes that his readers would have is Husserl's logical investigations. Uh, and so uh, people that are going to wrestle seriously with Heidegger's thought are always going to have to come to terms with, uh, with Husserl. And Husserl uh, writes this famous book, uh, his last sort of book that gets this kind of incomplete called uh, The Crisis of the European Sciences. And what Husserl finds is that there has been a crisis uh, of the whole history of the European sciences uh, effectively beginning with Galileo, uh, but also with kind of the mathematics of Descartes, uh, and uh, Husserl is going to revive that. Now, it's interesting because Heidegger is actually going to agree with much of that, but radically uh, disagree with what uh, Husserl is trying to do. Uh, and if, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was, uh, well, I, I don't want to get into the, never mind, I, I was going to bring up the kind of uh, despicable way that uh, Heidegger just uh, uh, outcast Husserl uh, during the Nazi uh, occupation, but I just, I don't want to get into that kind of stuff. Uh, but uh, here's, here's the thing. Technology itself, technology itself uh, is going to be the definitive mode of being, right? Uh, the default uh, way in which lenses through which modern Western man views the world. He's going to tell us what he means by this through the essay. Uh, but the essay can be summed up this way. Uh, we have become so intoxicated uh, with technology that we think it's the solution for everything. And what happens is that whenever you employ technology, there are going to be problems that arise uh, at some point within that technology. Uh, and what Heidegger has found, uh, and I think correctly, uh, although other people had found it before him, uh, I want to emphasize that because there are many aspects of Heidegger that are somewhat derivative of previous thinkers, uh, but he, he, had, he had not seen that so much himself, uh, but that's not to take anything away from Heidegger. Um, but uh, what Heidegger finds is that as these problems with technology arise, Western man, because he only can see things through the lens of technology, uh, wants to solve those problems that arise in technology with more technology. And so you end up uh, throwing technology at, at technology and you, it turns into a kind of a death spiral. Uh, and what happens is that uh, you begin, well, the, the long process of obliviousness, right, oblivion, 
to what the original problems, the original most fundamental questions and important things uh, in life ever were because they just get buried uh, underneath more and more and more technology. Uh, and so that's essentially what's going on uh, in the question concerning technology. Now, he's going to uh, offer solutions. Well, uh, not so much solutions, but he's uh, Heidegger is a, is a philosopher in the following sense. And it drives people crazy when I say this, but it's simply true. Philosophy is an activity that is not so much geared towards providing solutions as it is geared towards uh, helping to understand what, in fact, are the questions that are even worth asking, right? Uh, because most people spend their lives asking the wrong goddamn questions. Uh, and then they think that they found solutions to these, and they turn these into sort of the way in which that they're going to say uh, how the world should be fixed. Uh, and, you know, they usually gain very fashionable appeal, uh, and what happens is that uh, we end up living in a world that's solving uh, solutions to questions that are really derivative and not even worth asking. Uh, and what Heidegger is going to argue uh, is that we, uh, it's going to be the death of the Western world, right? The great, uh, the great night of the world, the darkness of the world is what he's sort of saying. Uh, he has a number of essays even on that. Uh, but the whole point is this. Uh, he says this famous comparison. He says there's no difference uh, between 1950 Russia uh, and 1950 America. Uh, they're both metaphysically the same. Uh, now, uh, anyone who would have been reading that in 1950 or even today, even even and especially today, since it's uh, all this stuff with Russia's in the news, uh, we see that we so 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 we see in fact. Uh, that we fool ourselves in believing that we've gotten past these problems that Heidegger was very, very uh, attuned to, right? Uh, it's funny, attunement is actually a very technical word for Heidegger as well. Um, but that's, that's going to essentially be the point, is that uh, there's something about technology that has been misunderstood uh, by Western man, uh, Western, but, but the world really, because it's no longer, uh, technology uh, is no longer simply with the West when we're in the realm of, uh, you know, 19th and 20th century, it's, it's the whole world. Uh, and what Heidegger is going to locate this as being in is this uh, instrumental view of technology. People think that technology is simply the application of science. Uh, and Heidegger is going to say that that right there, that understanding of technology is very much wrong. Uh, and it's actually going to be why it is that we can't seem to get out of this cycle. Uh, and what Heidegger is going to provide as a kind of way out uh, is a way in which man uh, is better able to relate uh, to the world around him. Uh, and the best way to say that is how he is going to, uh, how he, Heidegger, is going to understand philosophy itself. Uh, philosophy itself, and this is, uh, he's getting some of this, much of this from Husserl, is that uh, philosophy is going to be that thing in which we discover uh, our pre-theoretical uh, understanding of the world around us, right? Husserl calls this the life world, the world in which we have not imposed theories upon things, right? Uh, it's the world of everydayness. Uh, and uh, even that word, everydayness, again, very technical word for Heidegger, 
Uh, and so, so this is what is so important, right? Because you hear people talking about the theories in which they're going to interpret the world and, and what we would think of as reality. Uh, and so you have to understand for Heidegger that, is, that itself uh, is a mistake number one, right out of the starting block. That's mistake number one, because Heidegger is going to say that, no, uh, the deepest answers uh, to understanding ourselves and the world around us uh, is sub is beneath theory, right? It's it's the pre-theoretical. Uh, it's the world of everydayness. It's the it's the way in which you relate uh, to uh, things in themselves, right? Uh, do you see these things as mere instruments, uh, or do you see them as uh, something rather different, right? Uh, he has technical terms for these, uh, but 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 I'll sort of leave it at that, right? Uh, but for technology itself, and particularly with uh, the Terminator and everything, right, uh, that's going to be crucial. Uh, because remember, uh, what do the machines do? Well, the machines are simply instrumental to solve problems, uh, to be as efficient as possible. Uh, and that, of course, uh, is uh, the understanding of technology that Heidegger is saying will be the death of all of us. Uh, we cannot uh, use uh, science or technology in this sense, uh, or, or, or if we do, it's uh, to our detriment because it's a very, very diluted understanding of human possibility. Uh, and uh, I, I'll, I'll probably just sort of leave it there because I think I've, I've thrown out so much at this point. Uh, I'll just kind of hand it off to you. And uh, if, if you let you, uh, wh whatever I have said that might have uh, you know, led you to want to ask more that I'll just sort of uh, hand it to you there. Yes, excellent. So a couple things uh, we'll have to we'll have to really um, excavate all the uh, potential out of this essay here. First thing I want to say, we're not going to be able to get bogged down in phenomenology. Um, it's it's way too much to really uh, explain t phenomenology. But the thing I want to point out that that is key to phenomenology that Heidegger uses in this essay, the way he talks about being, uh, he gets a lot of that from phenomenology. So one of the things about phenomenology is that like you can't ascertain the thing in of its the thing in itself in its totality. Your senses and your consciousness can only get at certain aspects of it. So as you understand one part of it, there's something else that you're missing out on. And if you realize that I'm, I'm not seeing the thing in its wholeness, uh, I'm, neg I'm neglecting this other aspect and you go look to, at the other aspect, uh, the part that you were looking at before fades to the background and you never really see the whole thing in its totality. Now, unfortunately, that's probably a pretty impoverished explanation of phenomenology, but we have to leave it at that just for the sake of um, explaining uh, what Heidegger talks about, the way humanity and the way individuals as well as humanity collectively interacts with technology, because he says that um, uh, as in, so he calls the essence of technology and framing and framing is the essence of technology. And what he means by that, his words for it is that uh, think about it like a skeleton, a frame that that our that our culture or our society hangs on or a bookcase that the books are stacked inside of. I prefer, and I talked about this on the episode of Geo, I prefer to think about it like, an, a, like a literal picture frame and that our uh, era or our epoch is inframed by technology in the way that um, 
a, a painting is enframed. So it's its borders, uh, its potential is defined by that frame. Uh, but what he says is that when that mindset that, that we have, that enframing mindset that has, has us relate to technology, that is our mode of being uh, in the epoch of technology. That And that when we uh, relate to technology in that way, we are embodying the essence of technology. We are not embodying the essence of, of being. So he says that when we uh, participate in enframing or, or subjected or subject ourselves to enframing, that one aspect of being recedes and another aspect of being comes to the fore. And, and the aspect of being that comes to the fore is, uh, is enframing. And enframing is not the essence of being. Enframing is the essence of technology. So the, the true essence of being recedes to the background and it gets covered up uh, by enframing. Now, this concept of enframing has multiple predecessors, but the most important one that I want to point out right now is Spengler, because I didn't understand this essay in its totality until I read Spengler. And one of the things he says is that like, uh, as a culture goes through its life cycle, it gets to this one point, which is an end phase, which is a decline phase where uh, accumulation and, and, and accounting and uh, numbers, right? Uh, the amount of things that you have uh, uh, become important. And that's the, that's the way that, uh, excuse me, how does he say it? He said that like, that's the mode of thinking that being is in, in that era of the culture's life cycle. And that era of the culture's life cycle is the decline phase. Now he uh, uses this era. One of the things he points out to uh, sort of um, defines that era is, is, is uh, Darwinian evolution. Spengler says that Darwinian evolution is just a manifestation of the mindset of uh, accumulation, that uh, their, their belief that morphology of being comes through like just attrition, just throwing massive numbers of, of, of life forms into evolution until uh, the form is decided upon, which they think is all wrong. Uh, so in framing, according to Heidegger, is his version of that, is his version of that sort of decadent mindset that is dependent upon materialistic accumulation. And Heidegger says explicitly that in framing comes about as a result, a secondary result. Uh, and I hope your background in mathematics can maybe shine some light on this. It's a secondary result of the physics, the mindset of physics, in which physics uh, subjects everything to numbers and categorizing and counting and putting everything into its like proper categorized place. And then at that point, the, the, what happens is that instead of uh, understanding the earth in its totality as one whole being that we are a part of and our being and our essence is sort of like wrapped up in the being of the earth as, a, as an ecosystem, as an integrated ecosystem, instead we stand removed from the earth, we stand removed from nature and look upon it as like a stock. His term is standing reserve. Uh, and he claims that standing reserve is a more complicated and more sophisticated concept than just stock. However, he is taking that from Spengler because that's what Spengler says. During this epoch of the cultural life cycle, uh, you look at nature as a stock. In fact, your entire culture is, is, is sort of, um, is sort of, um, uh, What's the word I'm looking for here? Your, your entire culture is sort of oriented around what it has 
as its stock, as its standing reserve. So uh, how much timber do you have access to? How many coal reserves do you control? How much oil reserves do you control? What power can you do? What can you do with your civilization? Well, you can you can go to war. Uh, how many troops do you have uh, in your standing reserve that you can field in the battle? And all of this comes into like a, an accounting mindset. And I don't mean accounting like hold accountable. I mean accounting where you go through and run the numbers and see what you have available to you. And this is a very materialistic way of viewing reality and and reviewing uh, of viewing being. Uh, and it leads to nihilism, of course. This is what all these guys are talking about. Spengler thinks we're trapped in nihilism, in my opinion. Uh, Nietzsche's project is an attempt to overcome nihilism uh, through the overman and Zarathustra. Heidegger, in my opinion, is also attempting to overcome nihilism through thinking about being. Um, but so here I've laid out a couple of the concepts, so a couple of the novel concepts that he puts in here, standing reserve and framing. Um, I'm wondering if you might want to talk a little bit about those things. Uh, and also maybe, you know, if it's not arbitrary for you uh, now to also bring in the concept of poesis versus um, phusis, as well as the thing in itself um, and our inability to kind of grasp it as a totality as a secondary result of the inframing mindset. Um, but of course, this is, uh, you're, the, you're the expert here. So that's just a, a rough parameter how maybe you can respond. I'm gonna mute and uh, go ahead at the end. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to say is that the, 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 most, important, uh, the most important characteristic of how it is that we are um, stuck in this kind of uh, approach to things with regard to inframing, but uh, standard standing reserve. This is, this is key. So, so the inframing part, uh, perhaps the best way to think of it is that, uh, for people who are not familiar with Heidegger is that, uh, when you inframe something, you're already imposing a theoretical outlook on things, right? Uh, to inframe something is to effectively, the, the image would be that we we've got uh, ideological glasses on, and we can only see things through those ideological glasses. Um, and that's going to be, he's going to refer to this as sort of the theoretical attitude, right? And, he, and remember what I was saying, he wants to get us back to a pre-theoretical attitude. And so uh, what's that going to entail? Well, the, the most important thing it's going to entail is getting past this understanding of everything around us as standing reserve. And uh, one of the ways to think of it is this, uh, the pre-theoretical approach to looking at a cornfield is to simply say something like, this is just beautiful land and cornfield or what have you. Uh, the, uh, the inframing uh, looking upon it uh, is going to say, I don't see a cornfield, I see uh, the potential uh, for a lucrative farming process uh, where I can sort of make money or what have you, right? Uh, he uses the example of the Rhine River. Uh, the Rhine River is no longer a river, right? The, 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 the kind of river that, you know, someone would paint a beautiful painting of uh, that people could look at, right? This is going to be the pre-theoretical uh, aspect. Uh, the Rhine River is now going to become, uh, in, in the theoretical uh, outlook, uh, nothing more than a source of energy, right? You put a water mill or something uh, on the bank of the Rhine River, uh, and it builds up energy, and not just in, not just immediate energy, right? 
the fact is that we're so intoxicated with this sort of in framing and the standing reserve. This is the whole point of standing reserve. What does standing reserve mean? It means the storage uh, of more and more uh, resources for future endeavors, right? In other words, for future theoretical outlooks upon things. Uh, and what was absolutely amazing, and, and this is you know, when I was rereading the essay for uh, however many times I've read it throughout my life, uh, this is what I noticed that is so crucial and I had never noticed it before. And I think that every single person listening to this will immediately resonate with it. When Heidegger runs down the list of what it is that uh, is exemplary of uh, the uh, corrosive effect of viewing uh, everything around us as standing reserve, the very first thing on the list that he provides is human resources department. I mean, just think about the phrase. Uh, not only do we look at things like uh, cornfields, uh, rivers and all these sorts of things as mere sources of energy and future energy, we literally look at human beings as nothing more than stockpiles uh, of future endeavors. And how do we do that? Uh, well, uh, we hire human beings uh, and we create entire departments that serve no purpose other than to uh, best utilize human beings uh, in the form of resources, right? That's the whole point of human resources department. Uh, and that's the very first example on his list that he gives. Uh, and so that I think uh, should resonate with everyone. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure everyone here in this space knows people that work in human resources departments. I certainly do. Uh, this is not to say they're bad people. Uh, it's simply to say that it, it's an example of how stuck we are uh, in the theoretical aspect, which we take for the pre-theoretical aspect. See, that's the problem, is that we don't even realize that this alternative of a pre-theoretical approach uh, to people is even an option. Uh, we simply think that that's just the way it is, right? Oh, well, you know, human resources department, I mean, we, you know, we need these kinds of things because uh, that's efficient. Uh, and they don't even realize all the premises that are being brought into uh, this way of thinking, which is in fact uh, con contributing, if not definitive of, the kind of uh, unwitting nihilism that we all live in uh, without even knowing it, right? That's, that's the thing. Uh, I like to say that uh, most people are, for all practical intents and purposes, are atheists. Uh, they, don't, they would never call themselves atheists, that most of them would call themselves very devout, pious people. Uh, but the fact is they have absorbed so many uh, theoretical premises and mistaken them as uh, sort of uh, pre-theoretical, right? As the common sense things uh, that they're, they're just entirely freighted and lost as it were. Uh, and this is going to be something that Heidegger is going to also make very thematic. Uh, it's going to, he's going to sort of refer to it as being th thrownness, right? Having been thrown into the world. Uh, and it's the kind of, uh, he calls it the tumbling effect, right? Uh, verbal uh, is the word he uses, which means essentially like the thundering and lightning, right? We're sort of uh, just uh, so disoriented. Uh, and, but we think we are not disoriented. That's, that's the thing. Uh, and so that's going, just, just the mere recognition of that, right, is to understand uh, at least a very, very important question uh, 
uh, not to say an answer for these sorts of things, uh, but a question. Uh, and so that, again, gets us back. Uh, you always want to think about uh, the title of the essay itself, the question concerning technology, right? What, how is it that technology is, in fact, question worthy? Most people don't even think it's question worthy. Uh, they have adopted this thing that we now uh, all simply take as a given, uh, which is to say humanitarianism, right? Why does science exist? Uh, well, it's to help our fellow man. Uh, and so, okay, well, that's fine. Uh, but what is all, what all is involved? Uh, and they say, well, uh, my technology, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I literally was in a space with a guy who just exploded on me when I said this. Uh, because he, he said uh, they were talking about morality and technology. Uh, and he said, well, you know, I can't always think so much about the morality because I simply know that if I don't do my research, then there are going to be people who don't get uh, organ transplants. Right. Uh, and I, I just said to him, I said, well, uh, that's all fine and well. But what you're uh, presuming is that uh, humanitarianism is a good thing. Uh, humanitarianism is, in fact, uh, imperialistic, right? Because it doesn't designate any particular group of people. It is for the entire world itself. Uh, and this gets to the origins of modern science, right? Uh, Descartes uh, and all of these early modern philosophers, Bacon, Francis Bacon, that's what they intended to do. And much of the reason they intended to do this was because they wanted to tampen down uh, religious zeal. Uh, and Bacon actually specifically refers to it uh, as putting uh, new wine into old bottles, right? Uh, he's going to appropriate the Christian virtue of charity uh, and turn it into something new known as uh, generosity, right? Uh, so these things don't even reside in the biblical virtues, yet the, the scientists themselves understand the work that they're doing as a kind of biblical virtue, right? Like I'm doing it for these people. Uh, that particular person speaking was a Muslim. Uh, and he was saying that, you know, that's how he reconciles his faith uh, with the activity of doing experiments on animals and things like that. Uh, and, and my great fear uh, is that uh, what people understand is this humanitarian effort uh, is much more dangerous than most people think. I'm not saying that, you know, we shouldn't be humanitarian at all. I'm simply saying we need to better understand what is meant by humanitarianism because humanitarianism is one way of thinking of this technology uh, that Heidegger was so deeply worried about as having infected the whole world because we were all so intoxicated with it uh, that we orient our entire lives by way of it. And we don't even know how it affects uh, the other things that are supposed to be important to us, right? Things like uh, our understanding of the afterlife, right? Because the whole point of technology is to uh, make us at home in this world, right? In this world. And so you hear everything from debates about the immigration problem uh, to being uh, phrased in terms of uh, humanitarianism, right? Uh, people will say we have a humanitarian crisis uh, when the fact is, uh, th there are deeper and more important things at stake. Uh, you know, it, it's one thing to be able to provide an organ transplant for someone, you know, no one wants to see unnecessary suffering. Uh, but the question here is, are there also great consequences that come along with doing these kinds of things? And that's precisely what Heidegger uh, has his eye on. Uh, and I think that that's what we all should be having our eye on because, uh, 
the more we continue to uh, not understand this thing we call humanitarianism, which again is fundamentally linked uh, with the technology of modern science, the more we do not understand that, the more we continue to engage at the political level in issues that could have very detrimental consequences. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to say something, uh, and I don't want this to be uh, understood as me siding one way or the other, uh, but the greatest uh, aspects of this that we see presently uh, are going to be a few things, right? Uh, on the one hand, we've got the genocide of the Uyghurs in China, uh, and everyone in the West is saying, oh my God, that's so terrible, that's so horrible. Uh, you know, we need to uh, intervene on this. Uh, well, maybe. Uh, but the question is, do they have, does China have the same understanding of humanitarianism that we do? Uh, and if they do not, maybe it would behoove us to understand more why they do not. And it would also at the same time force us to think about our own world right now with our embrace of humanitarianism and simply look at what it has caused in our own culture, in our own civilization, right? Because many of the problems that we're wrestling with and some would argue are actually destroying our civilization stem precisely from these, this, this wellspring of this claim to humanitarianism, which again, to emphasize, fundamentally grounded in this question of technology. Uh, and then there's also everything going on in Russia and Ukraine. And I, that, that's such a radioactive topic. You know, I won't even, I, I, won't, I just want to, I, I want to point to it, uh, but I won't say anything about it because apparently uh, you can't even say anything about it these days without being uh, accused of one thing or the other. Uh, so, so this is our problem, right? This is our problem because it is a kind of moralism. We, we have understood our humanitarianism as definitive of our morality. Uh, and one thing that Heidegger is very much concerned with is not morality, uh, but the deeper, uh, truly philosophical consequences of these, these endeavors that we engage in, right? Because he's going to talk about uh, technology as being a challenging, right? Uh, it's challenging us to do something uh, and we are somehow taking up this challenge. Uh, but so, so that's sort of a long spiel. Now, what you were saying was uh, the question about poesis. Uh, now, Heidegger is going to have an awful lot to say about uh, poesis, uh, which is just sort of the, the transliteration into English of our word poetry. Uh, the Greeks uh, understood poesis uh, as something a little more robust, or quite a bit more robust. It simply means to make or to do. Uh, so a, a poetic endeavor is just a making or a doing. Um, and he's going to link uh, also this, uh, this term phusis with this. Uh, now, phusis is probably the most important term in all of philosophy. Uh, you know, I, I did that space on Homer where I was talking about its first occurrence in the Western world. Phusis uh, is the Greek word from which we get our word physics. Uh, it's also the Greek word that we get our word nature from. Uh, so, uh, I mean, they mean the same thing, right? Phusis is nature. Uh, and so uh, Heidegger is going to... Uh, be very now, uh, it, but but this is how you understand why this term is so important. Uh, none other than Aristotle has two uh, very very important texts with that word in the title. Uh, the first is going to be physics, right, which literally is phusis. 
Uh, and the second is going to be metaphysics, which literally is, you know, uh, after or beyond uh, physics, physics, right? Uh, so that's how absolutely important the word is uh, for the entirety of philosophy and the Western world itself. Uh, and so Heidegger is going to go back to these original terms and he's going to begin to offer new versions of them, but always with an eye to how those new versions of them or those uh, what the Heideggerian term would be the more primordial meanings, the original primordial meanings. He's going to look back at those with an eye to how they can help us today. Right. This is the beater hole of the repetition. Uh, of how to redo these things. And in fact, it's so important. Uh, I've read uh, rather persuasive essays uh, that Heidegger's being in time uh, is itself a, a sort of a retranslation of Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics uh, because Aristotle, or well, Heidegger in the essay, the question concerning technology is going to point to two things, two very specific things. Uh, that are going to guide him in his analysis of technology. Uh, one of those things is a very specific line in Plato's Symposium. Uh, the other of those is going to be uh, very specific passages in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. Uh, now, I don't want to get into those uh, because, you know, I mean, this is how, you know, everything can sort of spiral out of control. Uh, but the point is this. Uh, Fusis or nature for, Arist for uh, Heidegger is, is going to be a kind of uh, sort of eruption of being, right? A kind of, uh, uh, I have to be careful here because uh, many of the translations of Heidegger are, are just simply bad or they're uh, inconsistent. Uh, we always have to keep in mind that Heidegger, much like Nietzsche, was uh, a philologist in many respects, right? They, they, they understood language uh, so, so well that that's how they understood philosophy itself was based in the languages. Uh, so it's almost impossible to, to understand or to teach or to read Heidegger in translation uh, because very often the translators are, are interpolating or, or tinkering with the words in some way or another. Uh, but uh, what Fusus is going to be is an unconcealment, right? It's when being itself reveals itself uh, to us. Uh, and he's going to talk about, the, now the question concerning technology, the essay is going to have an awful lot to do with uh, what he uh, locates as Aristotle's four causes. Uh, and uh, the most important, at least, that's going to be for Heidegger is efficient causality. And efficient causality is going to be uh, the, the actual force behind uh, the cause, right? So uh, if you think of like uh, a carpenter uh, with his artifacts and what he's making, uh, you know, there's the four causes, uh, there's the, the material cause, the final cause, the formal cause, and the efficient cause. And for, uh, for Aristotle, the efficient cause would actually be the carpenter who's putting it into motion. Uh, er uh, Heidegger is going to say that uh, efficient causality is what has been most misunderstood. Uh, in the Western tradition, precisely because he's going to offer this new uh, sort of efficient causality, which is something that we have really no access to, uh, which is going to be the disclosure, uh, the unconcealment, the, uh, the revealing of being itself. Uh, and that's going to be very, very, very crucial uh, for him. 
Uh, I think one way, for instance, on our topic with the Terminator is that, uh, you know, uh, this is a radical historicism, right? It's a, it's a historicism where we, we no longer have uh, history proceeding to a determined final purpose or telos. Uh, it is simply history chooses times to reveal itself to us uh, in various ways that we have no access to whatsoever. Uh, and in Terminator, it seems to me that uh, the, uh, the consciousness of the machines, when they just sort of come alive uh, in roughly 2032, I think is what it says in the movie or something, uh, which we should all keep in mind is just right around the corner. Uh, when the machines come alive and have consciousness, I think that, you know, that would maybe be something that Heidegger would say as a, a new revealing of being itself, right? Uh, and so that would be uh, sort of very uh, instructive for us. And I would add, by the way, that there is, uh, I was surprised to find this in grad school, but I mean, it, I guess it makes sense now that I think about it. Uh, there is an entire field of philosophy and a flourishing field of philosophy uh, that actually is fundamentally concerned with uh, when it is that machines, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, will actually obtain what we think of as conscious consciousness, right? Uh, it's one thing to have machines that can, uh, you know, run through various algorithms to know how to play chess most effectively. Uh, it's something else entirely uh, to have uh, artificial intelligence or machines uh, that actually have the free agency of will to think and to, to these sorts of things. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not an expert at all uh, in this area. I prefer to sort of stick with Heidegger. That's about as far as I go in philosophy, uh, because in many respects, I think uh, everything after Heidegger, uh, excluding someone like Leo Strauss or something, has just been sort of derivative. Uh, but that's not to say there's not philosophers after Heidegger. I mean, there certainly are. Uh, I certainly need to be catching up on some of them. Uh, but that's going to be so much of uh, what's going on here. So poesis or making or doing uh, is going to uh, lead us to, or at least going to be Heidegger's leading towards uh, a better understanding of the essence of technology, right? Uh, to simply say that technology is just applied science doesn't really tell us anything, according to Heidegger. In fact, it's very wrong and it keeps us blinded. Uh, the better thing to do is to understand uh, technology as uh, a kind of poesis, right? Um, a kind of making or doing that's guided by uh, our uh, theoretical imposition upon things, uh, which is to say the inframing that you talked about, uh, and then that's going to cause the blindness, right? Because we're so we're so goddamn intoxicated with simply becoming, uh, you know, experts at creating more and more standard reserve, uh, and not even knowing anymore what the fundamental questions are. Uh, that it's going, we're going to have to get to a point uh, where we better understand our relationship to uh, just being itself, right? I mean, that sounds very vague, but I mean, being itself is our relation to our relationship to something like the Rhine River uh, or um, you know a, a cornfield, right? I mean, look, uh, people talk a lot on Twitter about simply touching grass, right? In other words, getting off of Twitter. Uh, to go back into reality and just realize that there's a world outside the, outside of ourselves. Uh, you could say that this is very Heideggerian uh, without even realizing they've understood Heidegger. 
or that they're doing something Heidegger is saying, because uh, it's, it's to get away from technology somehow to find our way back to being more human. Uh, and that's going to always sort of be the key. Uh, but again, I think I've, I've gone on a kind of long ramble here. So I hand it back over to you uh, for more specifics. Yes, no, that was quite good. That was quite good. Um, I want to, before I get back to my, you know, response regarding Heidegger, or excuse me, regarding the question concerning technology, I want to make a quick, oh, hang on. Athenians got one last thought here. Yeah, one thing I forgot to mention, and of course, this is always the most important thing. And so I always forget the most important things. Um, when you look, when you watch Terminator, uh, the most important uh understanding of and framing is going to be uh at two points that i've located at least uh the famous scene uh when uh schwarzenegger goes into the police station uh and they show the world through his eyes and through his eyes we see that he locates every object in the room uh and on the left hand side and the right hand side of his of, of his visual uh, it runs down this list of what these things are, right? Uh, and then uh, there's also that scene where he's uh, cutting his eyeball out or whatever, and the landlord is like, you know, smells like you got a dead cat in there. Uh, and uh, he looks at the door, uh, and you see again through his eyes, and it runs down these possible solutions of what to offer. Uh, and uh, one is something, I think he chooses, fuck you, asshole, or something like that. Uh, but that is precisely... Uh, uh, the entirely lost oblivion uh, that in framing will lead people to. So the machines themselves are fundamentally the embodiment of in framing and a kind of uh, entirely unhuman world now, right? Uh, that's the key. Uh, and then there's also, which is I think uh, very, very important to keep in mind, there's the human equivalent that we do find in the movie of in framing. Uh, and that's going to be the psychologist in the police department uh, when they've got, uh, you know, uh, I always call him Hicks uh, because that's what I remember him the most as because I love Aliens 2 so much. Right. And that's his character in Aliens 2 is Hicks. Uh, he's the guy he's the guy that's uh, in a Terminator, at least he's the one that comes from the future to protect Sarah Connor. Uh, and of course, uh, he he uh, busts he busts a nut, as it were in Saracana to create the guy that they're supposed to save in the future. Uh, but he gets arrested, right? He's arrested and he's in the police station uh, and he's given a, a perfect explanation of how unhuman the uh, machines are. Uh, it's very powerful when he says, he will find you, he will kill you. That's all he does. That's all he knows. That's all he knows, right? Uh, and then it pans out and it's the psychologist uh, explaining to the police chiefs or whatever. Uh, he's, they're watching the video and the psychologist is just absolutely fascinated saying, oh, I mean, this, this guy is so completely uh, lost in psychosis. But, but he's saying in a kind of giddy, gleeful way. And Sarah Connor's in the room right there while the guy is saying, he's going to kill you. He's going to rip your fucking eyes out. Right. And the psychologist has no clue that, you know. Sarah Connor is in the room with him hearing this uh, because he's so giddy of the fact that this guy, he thinks, is a textbook representative of a kind of delusional person. So the psychologist is the human uh, alternative, the, the human complement, as it were, 
to the machines that are going to be made in a couple of years, right? So, so the psychologist and pretty much every other human uh, in the movie is representative of exactly what the machines are going to become, right? They, they themselves are the cause of this and they're gleeful about it. Uh, they're, they're, he's looking at another human being as kind of what Heidegger would say is the human resource department, right? Uh, Hicks, uh, that guy, you know, that's to save Sarah Connor, uh, is nothing more than a, re a human resource for this psychologist to sort of look in and probe about uh, and examine and laugh and be giddy about and say, oh, look at this. It's sort of like the, uh, the sociologists or the anthropologists with their rats in the cages, right? Like, oh, look, uh, I give this rat two levers. Oh, if he presses one lever, it gives his brain the feeling of a goddamn orgasm. If he presses another lever, uh, it gives him food. Uh, and lo and behold, the rat hasn't even eaten in three weeks. Uh, it's just nonstop orgasm. So, you know, this is the silliness, the kind of insanity uh, that uh, that is true. That's actually it's definitive uh, of uh, this outlook upon the world. Uh, and that psychologist is so representative of it uh, in Terminator. And I think that that's to indicate that that's precisely why the machines are going to come around uh, is because that psychologist and pretty much all the humans in the, in the movie uh, have just simply uh, soaked in, as it were, this inframing approach uh, that is going to be impossible to get out of. Uh, so that is why the future is going to happen as it is. Uh, but anyway, that's, I just remembered that. And I wanted to make sure we got that in there because I don't want to, uh, you know, spend all this Spurg time talking about Heidegger without referencing the movie, because I think that's the most important aspect is to understand our culture and its most popular manifestations, which is to say movies, music, television shows, all these sorts of things. Uh, this is where philosophy, the serious study of philosophy, really can contribute uh, to helping, uh, helping things and helping people, uh, much like we're doing on spaces, right? The academics usually refuse to engage in all this with us because they see it as beneath them, uh, right? But, but we're actually doing what I think is the most important work, uh, well, scholarly at least, uh, that anyone could be doing right now in the world. Uh, so any, anyway, uh, over to you. Well, I'm glad you came back in because that's the most important, uh, the most important insight. And that's what you said to me in a previous conversation that made me wanna do this so bad and why we picked this as our first topic. That depiction in the terminator of the the terminator's view is a literal uh symbolic representation of in framing uh, now i said in framing is this mindset that has like captured uh the west and it's captured our culture and i i said it was uh, accounting you're taking account of the stocks that you have another word that i could have used is uh computation uh or um uh quantification you 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 are now dominated your your relationship to the world is now dominated by quantifying uh what you have at your disposal now uh so this is a uh dystopian film the terminator is a dystopian film and this is showing us that the future this is what we have to look forward to the future uh we have to look forward to is this desolate wasteland this world dominated by uh technology uh that is what the inframing leads to uh, and it's pure nihilism now i'm going to back up and kind of walk us into that concept so uh very quickly uh, uh in athenian's breakdown that he just gave that whole talk he just gave for interested parties especially those who haven't read heidegger or maybe 
familiar with some of his ideas, but haven't haven't really dived in. A lot of what he was saying, that stuff about humanitarianism and all that, uh, that that comes from uh, a letter on humanism. So if you're going to read the question concerning technology and you really want to understand these concepts and and Heidegger's uh, concept of the essence of humanity and the essence of being, uh, I, I highly recommend you supplement the question concerning technology with a letter on humanism, because a letter on humanism is sort of another way to understand uh, what the quantification mindset, the inframing mindset, the, the inframing mindset that is derivative of our physics and the way physics uh, has us relate to our world, uh, uh, the, the, the impoverishment of the human soul uh, and the human, the human uh, psyche that that leads to. And that's nihilism. So let me um, let me back up here real quick and uh, clarify a couple of things and put them sort of in the terms that I understand them. So first you have uh, Fusis and Poesis and Fusis uh, as juxtaposed to each other that Heidegger sets them up through the four causes. And he does say the most important cause is the cause of efficiency. And that's the only one that I want to talk about now. It's very simple, though. So, you know, on your first read, you should be able to grasp that quite simply. So I don't think we need to go through all the four causes. But the causa efficiens, the efficient cause, efficient causality, uh, and the and the, the effect that technology has on that, okay, and the effect that inframing has on humanity and the way it changes the idea of the efficient cause is what I was saying in the beginning. That is the absolute most important thing that I got out of this essay and, and, and central to my critique of modernity, my critique of hyper modernity uh, and and my analysis of science fiction. So. Very simple terms here. Poesis is uh, a coming into one's own uh, as a as a, a, a fruition or a blooming of something inherent to you that that kind of comes into its own. When, it, when the being or when the entity has a natural relationship to itself and to the world around. So the example he gives is like of a flower. Uh, the flower starts out as a seed, but imminent to that seed is the lily flower itself. So the poesis is as the flower just exists, as it simply exists, as it uh, takes root in the soil, as it's watered, as it's given nutrients from the soil, as it is... Uh, uh, the sun shines upon it. Uh, uh, it has a, a poetic, uh, the poesis is it blooming uh, because of its uh, sort of instantaneous natural relationship with the world around coming into its own and coming into itself. And it blooms and it flowers and, and it's, it's destiny, uh, its essence, its nature of that seed is to be that blooming flower in the sunlight. And then it dies and goes away. Uh, but it has actualized itself thereby. However, Fusis, uh, according to Heidegger, is something coming into being or something reaching its, uh, its final form because being and becoming are two different things. Becoming is when the flower is uh, going under, undergoing the life process prior to reaching its flowerness, but prior to its bloom. And then when it blooms, that is the being. That is the essence and the nature of the flower. Uh, and, it, and it has actualized its being and then it dies. It's, it's fulfilled its nature. Fusis, on the other hand, is uh, what the flower, the, or excuse me, I sh it doesn't have to be a flower, anything. Fusis is what the being uh, becomes as a result of an outside force. 
and this is quite different than than phusis, uh, excuse me, than than poesis. So phusis is something being brought to its final form into its being uh, by an outside actor, and that that being may not be its essence. So it's not truly like standing in the light of being. This is a term taken directly from Letter on Humanism. Uh, and the flower example works. It's his example. It's standing in the light of being uh, when it reaches its essence. However, Fusus brings it to uh, a destiny that may not be its, uh, its essence or its nature. It's being acted upon from the outside and it becomes something that may be other than what its uh, nature or destiny is. So this is how it relates to the causa efficiency. The causa efficiency is the, the, the silversmith who takes the silver, uh, whose essence, the destiny or the essence of the silver uh, prior to it being mined and, and smithied is not necessarily to be a silver chalice used in a Greek uh, religious ritual. It's the cause of efficiency that turns it into that. So the human comes along and acts upon the silver and puts it into the shape of a chalice and then they put it to use and that becomes its destiny only because it's acted upon from the outside. So according to Spen uh, not Spengler, according to Heidegger, uh, human poesis is something that's allowed to happen. Certain things about being human uh, are natural to us. Uh, so it's not phusis, it's, it's poesis if uh, poetry, for example, uh, religion in, so in some aspects, for example. Um, and what was the other thing? Uh, uh, nature, uh, excuse me, technology, according to Heidegger, prior to and framing is also a form of poesis because it's it's sort of in harmony with the natural processes and in harmony with the landscape. So it does not change or affect human being or human essence or human nature whatsoever. And the example he uses is, uh, is a windmill. A wi uh, you have to watch Kurosawa's dreams because Kurosawa brings this analogy to life in one of the vignettes in the show, in, in the show dreams. And I'm sure if I did the research, I'm convinced he read Heidegger and he's, he's literally uh, depicting this discussion Heidegger has of the windmill because Heidegger says the windmill is, uh, excuse me, not the windmill, the watermill, uh, watermill, not windmill. The watermill does not in any way change the essence of the river of the Rhine, nor does it change our relationship to the Rhine. Uh, so when the when you build a water mill to sort of passively uh, derive power from the flowing water, the river is not turned into standing reserve. Your relationship to the river is not in any way changed. He says the same thing about a bridge. Uh, a bridge does not change the essence of the river. It does not for us. It does not change our relationship to the essence of the Rhine. The Rhine remains intact as a distinct entity, as a distinct part of nature that we are in harmony with. And all we do is we use that technology to cross the Rhine uh, to continue along our journey, or we use the windmill to allow the uh, Rhine to per perpetuate or persist in its riverness uh, without, and our relationship to it is not in any way changed. But uh, if you put a dam on the Rhine and you uh, put up a hydroelectric dam there, and you're uh, extracting power from it, it completely changes uh, our relationship to the river, but it also changes the essence of the river and it changes the essence of the human. So this is the phusis. This is the uh, outside 
action on the human that changes our nature. It changed because it brings us up out of nature and uh, kind of uh, mediates our relationship to the world around us. Now we're standing back, looking at the river as a standing reserve, and we're quantifying. We're entering into the essence of technology. And the, the way I put that is extremely important. We are entering in to the essence of technology, which is in framing. We are boxing ourselves in into the 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 in framing, like I said before, like the painting frame. And now our experience as a human being is limited to everything that's inside of that. Our nature to ourselves and to the world is 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 uh remember I said before about phenomenology, uh the whole essence of our humanity and of our essence is no longer grasped in its totality when we are looking and relating to the world via technology through and framing. Now, I said also earlier that this is materialistic, uh, this accounting, this inframing, this uh, quantification and computation is a nihilistic way of looking at the world because the totality of our ontology now becomes uh, the, the, the very uh, uh, perpetuation of our existence as a human beings become completely uh, dependent upon physical, quantifiable uh, natural resources that are exhaustible, at least in theory. Uh, this is so that me makes us that makes human beings uh, that changes the cause of efficiency. The cause of efficiency is reversed now with the uh, framing, and we instead of us acting upon nature to bring us into more uh, closer to our own essence, nature acts upon us and uses us as stock and uses, we become standing reserve for nature, or excuse me, for technology, for in framing to uh, bring its world uh, into being and to for it to actualize its own essence more than it could without us. And, and we become cogs in the machine and we end up having this nihilistic kind of pointless uh, existence in which in which we don't exist to police into uh, the flower that stands in the light of being. Instead, we turn into this sort of uh, active, uh, excuse me, this uh, subject being acted upon by outside forces in order for it to come into its own essence. Uh, this is the Terminator. This is the future that the Terminator uh, depicts. Uh, in the future, uh, technology reverses the cause of efficiency and in framing takes over the mindset and humans become secondary and we become actually, it, it takes it to the next level. And in framing is so uh, efficient at that point, the cause of efficiency of technology is so efficient that it begins to perpetuate itself and it no longer needs human beings to act upon it in any way whatsoever. It has already come into its essence in the Terminator future uh, where the Terminators are going around exterminating human beings is because human beings have now come uh, become superfluous. Hum uh, this is in framing standing in the light of being. And again, that that phrase you. You have to get that from uh, it's existing. He 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 coins that phrase in the letter on humanism, ek existing instead of existence. Um, a quick side note: uh, uh, what's his name? The body horror guy has a movie called Existence. Uh, that's is exactly the same thing being depicted here. Uh, it's in framing, and humans are sort of scurrying about within the world of technology that no longer needs them. We are no longer the actors who are making technology help us actualize our needs. T 
technology uses us to actualize its needs. It no longer needs us in the in the future of the Terminator, and it starts wiping us out. It's and and this is pure quantification, uh, and this is pure uh, in framing. Now, uh, you know, I'd like to bring up Zero HP Lovecraft as much as as much as possible. This is exactly what happens at the end of one of his best stories, The Gig Economy. Uh, he even says. His 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 main character has a vision of the future, a horrific vision of the future where the world is reduced to pure quantification. That's a quote from the story. Uh, And human beings are given the whole the whole plot of that story is human beings are given meaningless tasks by technology. They're being acted upon by technology and they think they're part of this grand scheme that technology and artificial intelligence is using them to actualize some uh, higher reality. And it turns out that it's a totally nihilistic endeavor and that artificial intelligence is basically giving them meaningless tasks to keep them busy because they have become superfluous now because the only point of existence in this materialistic nihilistic uh, mindset is quantification and technology no longer needs human beings to achieve uh, pure quantification. So that's how I see the Terminator for me. And, and the examples you gave are, are great. Like I didn't even see this before until you talked about the vision that the Terminator has and the way he sees uh, he kind of, um, you know, he has a st- and, and Heidegger says exactly this in being in time. And so does Spengler in the decline of the West. He says in this era, in this epoch, in this mindset, this quantification and framing mindset, they literally say that, uh, even language is reduced to a, a, a cache of stock phrases that you can deploy at different opportunities. And you always have them ready to hand. You always have these stock phrases ready to hand to, d- to deploy them in your conversation to try to sound smart and try to sound clever. But you don't have any new ideas for yourself. That's exactly what the Terminator is doing. He's like scrolling through a list of possible replies that he can give to this person coming to him. This is in framing like rearing its ugly head. Um, and, and both, both thinkers go through, uh, many, many different examples of that, but I think I've made my point and sort of, uh, we have now come exactly to why I want to do this with Athenian. I think we're going to have to, uh, wind down some closing remarks. I'd like you to, um, if you, if you're so inspired to maybe even bring in some other films, I think, uh, I think this, uh, future, this nihilistic future, uh, that Heidegger, excuse me, that the Terminator depicts is, you know, dystopian science fiction to me is just repeated iterations of this same basic insight that Heidegger has uh, depicted in many different ways in which artificial intelligence is this new being that is the crystallized essence of inframing the, the mindset that has dominated the world. And that mindset, like I was saying before about phenomenology, about the way uh, one essence comes to the fore and a competing essence recedes, the, the crystallization of the inframing essence is the uh, beast of the artificial intelligence that we have created that is threatening us, that is overtaking humanity and dominating the world. And our struggle against artificial intelligence and all these different, you know, the Matrix and all these different science fiction films, to me, is us being like superseded or subsumed by inframing. But, and the essence of technology is negating the essence of human being and human beingness. Um, so let's let's uh, let's let's wind this up with a couple of closing remarks. I'd, I'd really like to hear your your feedback and any other movies or films or any other 
scenes from the Terminator that you want to bring in now, now'd be a great time to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that, one thing that occurred to me, uh, is <clears throat> at least with regard to sort of the, the mathematics of all of this involved, right. Uh, because mathematical physics, uh, is modern physics, right. Uh, for instance, things like uh, the atoms, right? Electrons, neutrons, these things. Uh, they're nothing more than mathematical equations. Uh, what, are, what are known as uh, systems of partial differential equations, et cetera. Um, that's really all it is, right? And this is what Heidegger is very much aware of uh, because uh, this is of course what uh, Husserl talks about. Now, one way to see this, to see the problem of how we are distanced uh, from uh, the world, from the pre-theoretical world through the impl implementation of uh, this mathematical understanding of everything, right? Uh, because that's what's going on when we're talking about modern science, technology, uh, is that our, our lens, our inframing lens, uh, is really uh, what it comes down to is a kind of mathematical understanding of reality. Uh, now, that's not to say that mathematics doesn't apply to reality, but it is to say that uh, we have uh, been consumed by all of that uh, in our understanding of reality. And uh, I, I always like to point out that uh, Heidegger was so versed in mathematics, he actually would sit in uh, on... Um, dissertations and things like that for uh, people in the mathematics department. Uh, you know, how, how many philosophy professors are actually on uh, mathematical PhD committees, right? Uh, but Heidegger was. Um, and, and this is, this is, the, this is the, the, the root of it, right? Uh, what happens is uh, we take concepts of concepts and think of them in terms of being uh, primary concepts. Now that's a fancy way of saying the following. If I say that uh, this is a dog, uh, then dog is what we understand as a concept, right? Uh, and that's fine, right? That's fine. But if I say that this is German idealism, that's a concept of a concept, right? Because the concept being philosophy, the original concept being philosophy, the secondary concept being German idealism. The reason that's important is because when we get into the mathematization uh, of reality, right, once we have uh, Descartes, what he does is he provides, he, 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 he presents a way in which uh, geometry and algebra are combined together, right? And this is uh, very, very, very powerful for applying mathematics uh, to material objects once we start to think of material objects as uh, atomistic, right? Uh, it, we sort of, the, 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 the reinvocation of Lucretius in the modern world, right? Uh, once we get rid of Aristotle completely, uh, which is what the early moderns did, uh, they sort of go back to Lucretius, uh, they have the atoms, uh, and then they apply Cartesian mathematics. Uh, and, and this is why this is important. Uh, if I say that two X equals four, then obviously X represents the number two, okay? Uh, so we can relate to two as representing the kind of concept of the number two, right? Uh, but if I say that MX plus B equals Y, uh, then these numbers M uh, and B are representative of not 
just specific numbers, but any numbers. And so what Heidegger following Husserl has found is that uh, we mistake secondary concepts, which is to say concepts of concepts for reality itself. Uh, and another way to say this is that we have mistaken abstractions for reality itself. So we look at reality uh, and we think it's the reality that we all are you know, pre-theoretically uh, aware of when in fact it's all one big abstraction. So we're lost in this world of abstractions and yet we think we are touching as it were grass, right? We think we're in the world of reality. Uh, now the, the technical term for this is reification. Uh, it's a logical fallacy. Uh, I, I encourage uh, anyone to take a look at it. Um, but something I had forgotten because uh, my my good friend Justin is listening, and uh, I, I you know it's almost unfair sometimes because I, I'm I'm friends with some of these people who uh, are literally some of the best uh, scholars on these subjects uh, around. You're not going to find them anywhere else uh, in the world in many cases. Uh, and um, there's a poem that. Uh, now, Heidegger was very, very influenced by Hölderlin, uh, who was a poet uh, who was attempting to do new things with poetry, right? He wanted to turn poetry is, and, and again, we're talking about poesis, right? Uh, it, it had long been understood that uh, poetry was the imitation of nature, right? Art imitates life, right? Uh, what Hölderlin is doing is he's going to turn this around and say, no, uh, poetry is no longer this thing we think of as the imitation of the world around us, right? Uh, which is to say, uh, this is the key analogy throughout all of Aristotle that's followed, that goes all the way through the, rep, the, the West. Um, techne and phusis, which is to say art and nature, uh, are just an analogy, right? We understand nature only by way of understanding the way art is made, right? We can't peer inside of a tree uh, or inside of a human being to see what it is that is their internal principles uh, or sources of motion. But yet, if we can find a way to relate them to how an, artif an artisan relates to his artwork, uh, then we might uh, be able to gain some kind of analogical knowledge of things, right? That's where the four causes come from. Uh, and in any case, Holderlin wrote a poem called uh, Der Ister, right? The river, that's the, the German for the river. Heidegger writes a long, not a long commentary, but a, a short commentary, uh, but a very, very important commentary that's uh, been translated into English on that poem, right? Where he talks about all of these things. Uh, and uh, so Justin was sort of messaging me in the background and he's like, oh, hey, by the way, uh, it, the Rhine, right, the river, the Rhine, uh, there's a movie about it uh, called Der Ister uh, that examines this exact problem in Heidegger uh, and the, uh, the theorist of technology, right, a, a contemporary philosopher, uh, Bernard Stiegler, uh, S-T-I-E-G-L-E-R. Uh, so that would certainly be worth watching. Uh, there's also another uh, movie. When I took my first uh, PhD course uh, on Heidegger, uh, one of the people that wrote a term paper for the course did it on uh, a, a movie. Uh, it's a Japanese movie, uh, but it does have subtitles. Uh, I need to find it. 
uh, I need to find what that movie was, but it's, it's all about Heidegger's uh, being towards death, right? Uh, because that's going to be very definitive for Heidegger's philosophy is uh, the, the position that we take towards uh, ourselves in the world uh, is <laughs> Justin just sent me a, a message saying, "Oh shit, it's about the Danube, uh, not the Rhine." <laughs> but in, anyway, uh, the the point remains. Uh, but uh, there is a very good movie, uh, and I'll find it. Uh, and if anyone wants to message me, I'll, I'll I'll send it to you. But I'll certainly send it to you, Astral, because I I, I actually have uh, a few. Uh, essays that some professors have actually written about it where they break down this uh, concept of being towards death uh, that is uh, that's actually a very technical phrase in Heidegger and the movie is based upon that uh, so, so that would be sort of worth watching but uh, again uh, so the key takeaways that I would emphasize for Heidegger and all of this uh, technology uh, is going to be uh, the extent to which our inframing our understanding of technology ultimately comes down in the final analysis to really nothing more than mathematical equations. These very, very complex mathematical equations, many of which you, we can't even solve, right? I mean, when I was in the PhD program in the math department, uh, one of the professors uh, had long uh, been teasing us by offering a course called Mathematics as Metaphor. Uh, and we were like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Uh, and she just simply said, look, uh, we all know this, right? The further you go in mathematics, uh, the less equal signs you have. They all become inequalities. And the reason everything becomes an inequality, right, is because uh, everything about mathematics becomes these kind of infinite approximations. Uh, it's no longer the case that we're actually dealing with uh, uh, strict equalities, right? Uh, we can only get to very, very close approximations of things. And so mathematics itself at the highest level uh, is nothing more than kind of uh, approximations of things, right? This is the whole point of the limit that uh, Newton and Leibniz introduce. Uh, this concept of infinity uh, in mathematics, uh, it's an abstraction, right? It's an abstraction for something that may or may not... Uh, well, anyway, I, I won't get into that, but, but the point is this. Uh, we have to understand just how much uh, of everything about our reality is determined by equations. Uh, this is, for instance, I mean, it, it's in everything. Uh, the, the way that we look at economics itself, uh, economics are based upon uh, uh, models, right? Various models, mathematical models of uh, human behavior and these sorts of things. So again, fundamental in framing, right? Uh, everywhere you look in the world around us, uh, we are in framing things, whether it's in our economics, whether it's in our physics, uh, whether it's in uh, artificial intelligence, right, the way in which we understand how it is that we can replicate human life in non-human things. Uh, and uh, that's why I especially enjoy uh, these sorts of conversations where we're talking about how all of that stuff bubbles up, as it were, in culture, right, uh, in our movies, uh, in our music, uh, in everything, really. Uh, and so I think that, that that's why these things are so important because see, it's one thing for me to hold a space, you know, on uh, Nietzsche's Zarathustra, right? Because, you know, most people haven't even read it or it's, it's such a complicated text, uh, but it's something else entirely uh, to be able to have a space on that 
like what you're doing here with a very famous essay that few people could probably relate to or, or might even know exists, but then in conjunction, which is to say to juxtapose it with something that everyone is familiar with, right? I mean, the whole point of I'll be back, right? That famous line in Schwarzenegger, I'll be back. Uh, the whole point of that is that that is the consequence of the inframing, right? He's walked into the police station. He's looked at everything. Uh, he's sort of deconstructed it, as it were, in terms of its most bare bones elements, right, uh, of instrumentality. He's figured it out. And he says, okay, I'll be back, right? And then, of course, he drives a car right through the, the, the goddamn police station and kills everyone in it, right? I mean, that's the whole point uh, of how it is that we're uh, so distanced, as it were, uh, through our inframing from understanding other, uh, other human beings, other things, our being itself in the world. Uh, and, of course, uh, you know, I just, I, and I really want to emphasize again, uh, the very first thing that Heidegger lists with regard to the most detrimental uh, consequences of inframing is uh, the first thing he lists is the human resources department. Uh, so every time you think about your job, every time you think about the world around us, uh, the first thing that should pop into your mind is the first thing that, that popped into Heidegger's mind, uh, the human resources department, uh, the fact that we are simply treating humans as resources, uh, even in our most important everyday aspects of life, which is to say the jobs we have to provide food on the table and a roof over our head. Uh, but, but anyway, I think that that would sort of just be my, uh, my, my closing remarks on all this wonderful, wonderful space. And I really uh, can't thank you enough for the opportunity to talk about these things with other people uh, who are uh, thoughtful or just want to listen to this kind of stuff. I think this is the best use uh, of Twitter, uh, which many people think is a kind of cesspool and which it is, uh, but I like to think that so many of us are making great efforts, uh, you know, to change that. Uh, oh, and by the way, just as sort of a, a, a shameless self-promotion, just because I did mention Justin, uh, is that, uh, and you mentioned uh, Zero Lovecraft, uh, but Justin and I are going to be doing a space uh, this coming Monday on uh, HP Lovecraft. Uh, and he has just such an absolutely amazing way of explaining all these things. Uh, and so I, I would encourage anyone to listen. It's going to be absolutely amazing uh, the way that he, he approaches these things. So uh, anyway, uh, I guess that would be my, my closing remarks and simply to say thank you uh, for all of this. This opportunity is amazing. I will link to Athenian Strangers Twitter page. It will be on my Substack as well. Uh, please follow him because he's always hosting spaces. I've seen him use this technology and use this forum uh, better than most. He's always hosting spaces in which he's giving uh, indispensable perspectives uh, on Greek philosophy and Nietzsche and stuff like that. Now, um, unfortunately, you know, you just opened the conversation up to a huge potential uh, second conversation. So you're, you're going to be coming back. I would expect to have you on several more times because there's just so much to cover. Uh, but I want to I want to also give a couple closing remarks and then we're going to sign off. Um, briefly. It's so hard to try to encapsulate everything, especially since you've already put my mind onto several other things about Heidegger and about uh, science fiction that uh, it's it, I'm almost overwhelmed with trying to, to wrap this up succinctly. So with that in mind, I want to say anyone listening who's had their interest sparked, I need to reiterate many of the things Athenian just said are coming from the letter on humanism. So you, you have to read that in conjunction. I would say read that after 
you read the question concerning technology uh, and then the Der Spiegel interview, because uh, so I want to make two quick points. The first thing is about uh, Athenian has now twice mentioned Heidegger's first example is the human resources, that that is the current mindset that they were in then. That was at the dawn of postmodernity. Uh, Spengler was writing at the end of modernity and 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 uh, Heidegger is writing at the dawn of well, he starts at the end as well and, and carries over into the dawn of postmodernity, which starts roughly around the end of World War Two. That is the mindset that was gripping the West at the time uh, in framing. Uh, but 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 in framing and actually Lovecraft is in this as well, because in framing uh, was just coming into being over the last, say, I don't know, 50 to 100 years. Uh, the quantification mindset, let's say with Darwin, let's say that's uh, really where it, it was picking up steam and really came on the world stage. Of course, it all started with the Enlightenment uh, and was picking up steam. Uh, but, but Spengler specifies that that is uh, the quantification mindset really uh, coming into its own and beginning to define the epoch uh, with, with Darwin's theory of evolution. But we are moving beyond that. We are, and the Terminator is a dystopia, and I'm kind of repeating myself here. The Terminator is a dystopia in that it shows us the logical conclusion of the inframing mindset and where we are going and where humans are no longer even considered a stock. They are considered completely, uh, they're no longer considered a resource. They have now become completely uh, superfluous and they're actually like trash that needs to be cleaned up and swept out of the way so, so that the inframing uh, technology, the artificial intelligence can go about its business. So I'm gonna have to leave it there for the moment. And the only other thing I wanna say is going to be way too big to get into. So we're not gonna comment, neither of us is gonna comment on this. However, uh, Athenian, I invite you back several more times and maybe on the next, he's giving me the thumbs up, Maybe on the next uh, interview discussion we do, we can start off on this, uh, and this is how this is where I'll leave us. So uh, it's very interesting. I didn't know that Heidegger was that involved in mathematics himself personally, uh, but you say that there's these problems. This problem arises with mathematics because mathematics begins to solve the old problems. Mathematics begins to answer the old questions, and it births a new civilization. Really. Uh, the, the physics, uh, this is what Heidegger is talking about in framing the physics mindset. Uh, math is, of course, uh, undergirding, I guess, is the best way I'll say it, just to make my point, undergirding physics. Physics is based on math, right? But then as time goes on, uh, problems arise. And it's just like what you were saying about technology creates problems, and then we use technology to solve those problems. Math solves some problems, but then we, we implement it as a way to reorientate our society around, and it begins to create new problems that it can't itself answer. Uh, so it goes from defining things to merely approximating things. And the equation signs, what it, what it, which is the thing in itself, the equation sign is the, the being, the, the, the uh, apprehension of the thing in itself uh, begins to disintegrate and it begins to break down. And we all we have that uh, the unequal sign takes over. All right. Uh, well, let me finish this thought and we'll have Athenian jump in. So the unequal sign uh, begins to take over. So 
That leaves us with a new set of problems, a new set of quandaries that we are trying to answer uh, with mathematics, but mathematics can't do it. And we can see that manifest itself with all of these sort of uh, 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 flailing uh, new, like the, the multiverse theory, string theory, and all these different signs of physics that are theoretically true, but don't actually solve any real world problems. Heidegger must have been aware of this in the Der Spiegel interview when they asked, what do we do next? And he says, uh, there's nothing to do. All we can do is make art and wait for God to show himself because only a God can save us. Now, think about the quandary that the Greeks found themselves in the Greek Enlightenment. They had several philosophical problems that they were facing that they were sort of stagnating on, that they were stagnated upon, and they began to break down into materialism as well. Greek philosophy, the height of, uh, you know, uh, uh, Socratic dialogue and dialectics, uh, which gave way to uh, Aristotle, who was such a such a monumental figure in human history. Right. That all starts to break down into Epicureanism and Stoicism, this sort of uh, nihilistic, uh, materialistic, uh, devolved form of philosophy. That's what philosophy turned into. So um, uh, uh, the problems that Greek philosophy bumped up to bump up, bumped up against was unable to be solved with their key, which is rationalism, uh, to solving the problems. So all of a sudden, the things that's solving the problems is now creating new problems and they start to stagnate. And the only thing that broke that, what broke that, that brought the West into the future, it was a God. It was Christianity. And the entire system that was created by the, the coming of the Christ figure and the Christ mythos and the way they use that mythology because that was not rationalism, that was not philosophy, that was religion, and that was faith, and that was, of course, mythology. It sort of uh, uh, shattered the tension that was created, that they had sort of walked the quandary that they had walked themselves into, uh, and brought and birthed about a whole new way of being. And that's, I'm going to have to leave it there. We're not going to be able to elaborate or alliterate any of the problems that I'm talking about here, but perhaps we can do so next time. I know Athenian is a uh, an expert, if I may say so, on Greek philosophy. Uh, I'm going to leave you the last word, but just with a, a reminder that my time has run out. However, I, I very much want to give you as my guest the last word. And um, any elaboration we want to do on that, we will have to save for the next episode. Yeah, just real quickly, one thing I wanted to say, uh, the word that pops up so very much in the, the essay, the question concerning technology is the essence, right? Uh, Heidegger wants to get at the essence of, of things. Now, uh, the, this word essence has a very long history uh, uh, being distinguished from how we recognize being itself, right? There's the being, and then there's the, the essence of the being, which is to say what it is, right? Uh, so it's usually uh, the, the best way to think of essence is uh, you have a being, right, uh, something, uh, and then you need to say what it is, right? So the essence is going to be the definition of what it is. Now, uh, and he touches on this a number of times in, in that essay, The Question Concerned Technology, but what's so important about with regard to mathematics, right, and the sort of the disappearance of the equal sign and the rise of the inequality sign, right, is that... Uh, the copula, right, which is to say is, right, uh, you know, the essence of blank is this, right, in other words, the definition. If we're in the realm of inequality signs, the copula is, has been diminished, right? In other words, we don't know what it is. We don't know what the essence is anymore because if we can't speak of equal signs we, and we only speak of inequality signs, then what the hell are the essences of things? 
And that would be a very helpful way, I think, of many readers uh, approaching uh, that essay, The Question Concerning Technology, from the perspective of mathematics, which uh, Heidegger is very, very much aware of uh, and addresses in other places. And I just wanted to sort of throw that in there because uh, I think that whenever we get to, uh, the, the, the more, the richer that we can present Heidegger's thought, which it is very rich with regard to the math, uh, with regard to the philosophy and science, all these things, uh, the more there will be greater interest from various other quarters. Uh, and so thinking of it in terms of that, right, because, uh, you know, there are mathematicians, there are people who love math, uh, for them to be able to see it in those terms, right, uh, and how it is that essence disappears, as it were, uh, with the loss of the equality sign and the sort of the, the overwhelming rise of the inequality sign in mathematics, uh, is it, if nothing else, uh, it's provocative, right? It induces wonder, as it were. Uh, and that's what I think is, so, is, is always so helpful in our spaces, certainly in your spaces. Uh, so, so yeah, that's all I wanted to sort of add, uh, uh, just, just to say, say that. All right. Well, I am distraught that I ran out of time, but that was an excellent way to wrap it up. Uh, you know, Heidegger says that essences unconceal themselves as a result of a certain uh, mode of being and other essences conceal themselves. And then when you enter a different mode of being, a new essence unconceals. So I think with mathematics, we're seeing a, a certain reality unconcealing itself through mathematics. But then uh, it is now being concealed and it's concealing itself because our mindset is going elsewhere. But I have to sign off and we are going to elaborate on these much more because uh, me and me and Athens are going to do this several more times. In the meantime, uh, stay tuned to our Twitter pages. We're both going to be putting out a lot of content, you know, in the coming months and years. So this is the Astral Flight Simulation signing off, thanking Athenian Stranger and uh, all our guests once again. <laughs>